0: I recently, came across an article online at a relatively new website called BioLogos, and the the site has as its aim to try to bring together faith and science. And although that is a, a noble aim, rightly conceived, the, the site I cannot commend to you. This particular article is entitled, After Inerrancy, Evangelicals and the Bible in a Postmodern Age. And it's a multi-part article written by a professor of biblical studies at Eastern University on this website, which purports to be sort of cutting edge of evangelical thinking and bringing together evangelical faith and science. And here's how the article starts. I'll just read the first few paragraphs. I write for evangelicals who either believe or suspect that our tradition has painted itself into an intellectual corner. The church has been down this road before. In the 16th and 17th centuries, it mistakenly criticized Copernicus and Galileo because their scientific views were clearly, quote, unbiblical. And just as the evidence finally came crashing down on church dogma in those days, so in ours, the facts are stacking up quickly against fundamentalist beliefs and creation, science, and in the kind of biblical inerrancy that supports it. While there was perhaps a period in history when evangelicals could deny the substance of these new theories because the available evidence seemed thin, it seems to me that we've now crossed an evidential threshold that makes it intellectually unsuitable to defend some of the standard dogmas of the conservative evangelical tradition. Holding fast to these old dogmas merely perpetuates the, quote, intellectual disaster of fundamentalism and, quote, the scandal of the evangelical mind. He continues, the intellectual cul-de-sac in which evangelicalism finds itself can be traced to many causes, but it seems clear, at least to me, that a fundamental cause of the scandal is its doctrine of Scripture. Often this doctrine involves a strict adherence to Biblicism. Learned before, if you don't like something Make it an ism. Put ism on the end. You know, it's bad to a belief that the Bible provides inerrant access to the truth about everything it touches on from biology, physics and astronomy to psychology, history and theology in more progressive evangelical circles. Inerrancy is sometimes defined more delicately in a way that allows the non-biblical evidence to carry more weight in our reflection. But even here, the subtle influence of inerrancy often engenders poor or at least inferior judgments about science history, human beings and theology in the pages that follow. I will briefly explain why conventional evangelical understandings of Scripture simply cannot be right. I will survey some of the important resources that can help the church get its bearings in a world without biblicistic. Wow, that's really bad. Biblicistic inerrancy. I'm not sure what it means to be biblicistic. I'm sure it's not good, it makes inerrancy sound even worse. Later, the author says, Biblicist inerrancy is an intellectual disaster. The authority of Scripture has been for the past two or three centuries under almost constant attack. And so it's no surprise that it would be time and again in our own day. And what we are beginning to see is more Christians. Even those who may want to be or see themselves growing out of the evangelical camp, questioning the full and complete inspiration of Scripture. And this means it is even more crucial that we understand and defend and celebrate, celebrate the authority of the Bible in our homes and in our churches. And tonight's text will help us do that. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. I've been working through this book on and off as several other people have been preaching here on Sunday evening besides myself. But we come now to the end of 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 19 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me just remind you how this fits into the larger argument in Peter's epistle. The letter thus far has been about godliness. In verses 3 through 11, we saw the power, the pattern, the premise of godliness. And then verses 12 through 15, Peter reminds them before he's going to die that they ought to excel in these virtues of godliness. And Peter wants to combat these false teachers who, as we'll see later in chapter 2 and 3, are arguing that sensuality is acceptable, that the Christian life can be one of license. And Peter, therefore, is exhorting the believers, ignore these false teachers, pursue holiness. And one of the reasons for pursuing holiness, he says, is because of the day of the Lord, this day of climactic judgment when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, salvation for his people, judgment upon the wicked. This day You see, chapter three, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of God? Because God is coming back because Christ will return. Therefore, we ought to live holy and upright lives. Now, the false teachers doubted they doubted that the Lord was actually going to return in this sort of cataclysmic Judgment. And so Peter is reminding them that indeed Jesus will return and he gives them two pieces of evidence. We saw in verses 16 through 18, he appeals to eyewitness testimony. He says, we were eyewitnesses. Peter, the other couple other disciples there on the mountain of transfiguration. They saw the glory of Jesus revealed and he understood you do not want to mess around with the glorified Christ, and he will surely come again. So he was an eyewitness to this transfiguration. And then he gives a second piece of evidence, the authority of the scriptures. And even today in a courtroom, there are these basic kinds of evidences. The lawyer will submit documents or the lawyer will call witnesses. And so we've seen the witnesses. Now we get the documents. Now, let me work through a few different interpretive questions in this passage, and then we will finish with some, some theological stakes in the ground. So look at up in verse 19. What does Peter mean when he speaks of the prophetic word? Well, I would argue that he's thinking of all of Scripture. He's certainly thinking of what has been written down. Verse 20 so verse 19, prophetic word, verse 19, he's referring to the same thing, and he calls it prophecy of Scripture. So prophetic word, prophecy of Scripture, Scripture, Greek word, graphe, literally means, it means writings. So we're, we're thinking not just of oral traditions, not just of some spoken event, but truth that has been written down and preserved in Holy Scripture, this prophetic word. And not just the prophetic parts, I think. Not just those parts that talked about the, the end, but the whole Old Testament. The law and the prophets are the general designation for the Old Testament. Sometimes it's just called the law. Here I think it's referred to simply as the prophetic word. Calvin says, I understand by prophecy of Scripture that which is contained in the Holy Scripture. So I think this is a broader term. He uh, simply is referring to everything in Scripture and all of it is of a prophetic nature. Now, even if that's not so, even if, as some commentators think, Peter is just thinking of those parts of Scripture which speak explicitly of prophecy, even if that's the case, then still, by implication, the rest of it is also of this same inspired nature. There's, there's no sort of distinction in Jewish thinking that, well, this part of Scripture is truer than this part of Scripture. Remember, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathed, all of it. So whether explicitly or by implication, Peter is talking about all of the Old Testament. Now, later, if you just look at uh, chapter three, verse 16. Peter is talking about Paul. He says, He writes, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter, already at this early date, is is putting Paul in the category of other scriptures. So, yes, he's thinking of the Old Testament, but right now it's an expanding category in the first century to include these other apostolic writings. And he says now about the scripture, verse 19, we have something more sure. Now, a lot of the commentators think Peter is saying the eyewitness testimony to the transfiguration is made more sure when it is confirmed by the prophetic word. So we saw the transfiguration. We also read about the coming of God and the end of the world. So that makes what we saw even more sure. That's how the the NIV translates it. We have the word of the prophets made more certain. So on this understanding, the prophets make more certain what we have here in the transfiguration. Now this is possible, but the verb to make which the the NASB and the NIV insert is not in The original language. Now, it's not always inappropriate that you would understand an implied word. That's what you have to do sometimes when you translate. But if you can make sense of the passage without it, I think it's best not to put it in. And the reason that I think people often want to say, well, made more certain, or want to say that it makes the transfiguration more certain, people want to give it that understanding, is because it seems hard to believe that Peter would say, that the prophetic word is even more sure than what he saw with his own eyes on the mountain. And yet, I think that's precisely what he is saying. In other words, he's saying, look, you, you you may question if what we saw on the mountain, if, if we really understood it, if we were really accurate, if it really happened the way we say it did. Well, let me give you an even more convincing Proof that there is a coming day of the Lord. The scripture says so. So don't miss the implication when it says in verse 19, we have something more sure. The implication is this the Bible is even more reliable than your senses. You saw it, we were there, it happened, and I'll give you something even more sure. Scripture says so. So we do not need to get special words of knowledge from the Lord to really hear from him. Says so in Scripture. We don't have to wonder, can we really know what Scripture says? Peter works under the assumption that they understand what this word is saying. Now, people sometimes make make sort of fun of the, the, the old saying, you know, Scripture says it, I believe it, that settles it. People sometimes say it in a way that's sort of just No, that's not what we want to do. But provided you understand what the scripture is saying, that's accurate. The scripture says so. God says so. And I want to be on the side of God. So verse 19 continues. Pay attention. You would do well to pay attention to this word. It is like a light. It shows you your way. It will light until the morning star rises in your heart. The day dawns and the morning star rises. What is this referring to in the Greco-Roman world? The morning star was the planet Venus. And now Peter's sort of co-opting this image and then putting it into an Old Testament framework. And he's using it to refer to Christ because Numbers 24, Balaam prophesied. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir and all his enemies Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. So there's a messianic prophecy that a star from Jacob, from Israel's lineage, would come and would be the destroyer of the wicked, the judger, judger. That's not a word. The judge of the nations. I need a vacation. okay? the judge of the nations. So it makes sense that Peter would use this imagery when the morning star rises in our hearts, when the star of Jacob comes to judge the nations And when he says rising in your hearts, he's he's speaking of our experience of Christ's coming as it will be a swelling and overflowing in our hearts to see him return, which will be such wonderful good news for us. But such grave news for all those who have opposed him. And then no prophecy comes from someone's interpretation. The end of verse 20, that is to say when they received this revelation from God, they did not just receive it and then sort of mm, struggle to make sense of it and twist it. And maybe maybe the wires got mixed up. And, you know, maybe God was was it's like uh, giving a dream to Pharaoh and well, Pharaoh got the dream or Nebuchadnezzar got the dream, but he didn't quite know what to do with it. And he gave it the wrong interpretation. Now, I says. No, the, the, the prophets, the, the men who spoke by God, they got the word, the revelation, and their understanding of it did not come from their own interpretation. It was not their own idea. He goes even further. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So B.B. Warfield, the great defender of biblical authority, says it is not the result of human investigation into the nature of things the product of its writer's own thinking, this is as much as to say it is a divine gift that men spoke from God. Pay attention to both of those little halves there. Men spoke. It was their words. They were speaking. We know Luke's gospel. He says he organized things and he did some research. You know from even a cursory reading of the Bible that the writers have different angles. They have different take on the same events in the Gospels. They have different styles. Some are very lofty. Some are very rustic. If you knew Greek, Hebrew, see, they use very different styles of writing and vocabulary. So this is not at all to deny that the men who wrote the Bible were still men. And that their personalities, learning, is reflected here. One of one of the the opposition, one of the objections to inerrancy that you will often hear, and it is a straw man, is what's called mechanical dictation theory. And that is that the people who wrote the Bible simply were were just. Mechanically, just writing down what God was just whispering in their ear, and that's just it. Or they were just sort of puppets, and He was just opening their mouths. That's not the way that Christians understand it. That is sort of the way that the Muslims understand with the Quran. I've I've yet to find. They're probably out there, but I haven't run across any evangelicals who describe inspiration in those mechanical dictation terms, and yet you always come across it when people want to object to it. They throw that straw man at you. No, we believe, theologians give the term concurrence, which means God superintending at the same time using the personalities, the gifts, the, the speech patterns, the vocabulary of the men who wrote. So men... Spoke It was truly their words, but in a larger sense, it was not their words. It was from God, not just human words, divine words. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. Calvin says they dared not to announce anything of their own and obediently followed the spirit as their guide who ruled in their mouth as in his own sanctuary. He ruled in their mouth as in their his own sanctuary. Sanctuary. This verb here, carried along, is the verb pharaoh, not, you know, pharaoh, but pharaoh means to bear or to born. It's the same word used earlier in verse 21, translated produce. No prophecy was ever. Born along, carried along, produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were born along, produced, carried along. Same Greek verb. It's also the Greek verb used up in verses 17 and 18. For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. Verse 18, we are ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. So the words from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration and the words from the prophets were carried along, born from the very same place, from God Himself. If you were there on the mountain and you heard God speak, this is My Son. Listen to Him. You heard that voice. You say, that was God speaking. In the same way, Peter says, the prophetic word, even more sure, you could say this is God speaking. So B.B. Warfield again says this term is not to be confused with guiding or directing or controlling or even leading in the full sense of that word. It goes beyond all such terms in assigning the effect produced specifically to the active agent. What is born is taken up by the bearer. "...and conveyed by the bearer's power, not its own, to the bearer's goal, not its own. The men who spoke from God are here declared, therefore, to have been taken up by the Holy Spirit and brought by His power to the goal of His choosing. The things which they spoke under this operation of the Spirit were therefore His things, not theirs." And that is the reason which is assigned why the prophetic word is so sure. Though spoken through the instrumentality of men, it is by virtue of the fact that these men spoke as born by the Holy Spirit that this is an immediately divine word. What does this mean? I think there are at least three theological stakes that we must put in the ground. Mark out as boundaries and mark out as in this is the area in which we want to live and move and have our being. This is the area in which we will be most safe, most full, most free. Three theological stakes in the ground. Number one, the Scripture is the Word of God. I underline the word is. In the beginning part of the last century, there were a group of theologians now referred to as neo-Orthodox. And they were responding to the out-and-out liberalism that had gained ascendancy in the Protestant church. And this theological liberalism, which only had an, an imminent God. That doesn't mean a God who's about to get here, but a God who's, just, who's, who's all close and, and no transcendent, no holiness. They responded to that, and they, they had a God who was very transcendent. A Christ who is divine. So, so these men, Karl Barth, chief among them, were neo-orthodox. And they were, they were trying to recover something that needed to be recovered. But in the process, Barth and others de- developed a, 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 an aberrant view of Scripture. And so Barth argued that the Bible contains the Word of God. Or sometimes you will hear people say, and I've read this in very recent books, some people realize they're getting it from Karl Barth. Other people don't. They will say the Bible becomes for us the Word of God. Or the event in which God speaks to us in the Bible is the Word of God. It's very subtle. You think, well, what, you know, what's the difference? That, that sort of language will go right by you. The Bible, the Bible becomes for us when we read it the Word of God. No, the Bible is the Word of God not simply when we experience it and then when the the Spirit meets us there and in that existential moment is it the Word of God, but here now, writings inspired, they record what men spoke as carried along by the Holy Spirit. The inspiration, therefore, is a past event, not a present or future event. It is something that has happened. This has been inspired, breathed out by God. Now, yes, we, we need the Spirit to help illumine, help us to understand. We're not absent from the Spirit's help in applying this. But this book, we're not waiting for some further act to make it inspirational to us or to make it come alive. It is living. Why does this all matter? Well, it matters because the authority then resides in the text, in the words, sentences, paragraphs of the text, not in our existential experience of those words, sentences, and paragraphs. So it is the difference between an objective and a subjective authority. And I think that people don't like the idea of the truth being written down, the Bible being the Word of God. I think people object to that because they don't like words and they really don't like propositions, which are just words put together in a statement. And I think that they don't like those because words, writings, propositions imply a stable and fixed meaning And people do not want truth to be so fixed. And it sounds too crass to think that inspiration would be in a text, or that truth is something that can be known. Now we cannot know it omnisciently, but we can know it objectively. And by that I mean it, it is an object. Outside of us. That's what's at stake here. That truth, the prophetic word, is something outside of us. It it doesn't just become truth when we experience it. It is truth whether we recognize it or not. And it has a meaning independent from us. This means what it means, whether we know what it means or not. Or whether we have an experience of its meaning or not. This is The Word of God. Second stake in the ground. So that's the first. The Bible is the Word of God. Second, it's the doctrine of sola scriptura. The Reformation was not at all a debate about whether Scripture made mistakes. No one thought that. Nobody thought that in the early church. They didn't think that in the Reformation. It's not there in the contemporary Catholic catechisms. What was at stake was not whether Scripture was the word of God, but whether Scripture alone was authoritative. So the Catholic Church had their tradition with a capital T, and that authority was to be put alongside sacred Scripture, councils, popes, the magisterium. Many many centuries later, the the doctrine of papal infallibility, which Protestants sometimes misunderstand—that well, you know, the Pope can't sin or whatever the Pope you know says—I think the Lions are going to the playoffs. Aha! You're not infallible. No, not not just anything, but what he decrees ex cathedra from the throne, from the chair—an official pronouncement. Today. We have a denial of sola scriptura. Yes, those Protestant-Catholic differences are still there. I think there's another route, though. It is often said that Scripture must bow before science. So natural revelation, what we see of God in His created world, and special revelation cannot disagree. These two books of revelation cannot disagree. And I absolutely believe that's true. They, they cannot disagree. Scripture, rightly understood, will not disagree with science rightly understood. However, passages like Romans 1, Psalm nineteen, and this one here in Second Peter show clearly that whatever other truth we can know in the Bible doesn't tell us what's true about everything. Whatever other truth we can know must be read through the lenses of Scripture and not the other way around. You, you cannot get at whatever truth you want, history, archaeology, physics, whatever, and get what well, we're going to go through there and then we're going to determine what the Bible says. Now, people often misunderstand what the Bible's trying to say or if it's even really saying anything about the things we think it's speaking on. So if the Bible talks about the sun rising, we don't have to believe that the sun actually rises and the earth is the, the center of the solar system, because we understand that observational sort of remarks are appropriate. We still speak of the sun rising. But Scripture, when it's properly understood, will not disagree with any other sort of truth, but the lens through which we look at every other kind of truth must be the Bible and not the other way around. So sola scriptura does not mean nuda scriptura. That's what one theologian said, a naked scripture. It doesn't mean that we, we totally divorce ourselves from tradition. Say, you know what, we're here and we're just going to look at the Bible like we've never looked at it before. And we're going to get right back to the first century. No, that's naive. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to pay attention to what other people have thought. But we're not going to be uh, you know, dismissive of, of every other sort of discipline and be anti-science or anti-history. But it is Scripture alone which is the supreme final authority. Because Scripture alone is the product of men carried along by the Holy Spirit. No other book. No other witness. Scripture alone is this most sure word. Scripture alone. About it, can we say that it did not come from someone's own interpretation? So people sometimes say, where do you get the doctrine of sola scriptura? It's not even in your Bible. Well, the only reason it's hard to see, not because it's nowhere, but because it's everywhere. It's everywhere assumed that there is a unique, supreme, chief, unbreakable, unbendable priority given to Scripture over other means of knowing the truth. This is a more sure word. The final authority is not Scripture plus something or Scripture and then something else as a check, or Scripture alongside something, the final authority on all matters on which Scripture intends to speak is sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And here we must take a stand, and it is difficult to do. And you may feel this. You may feel it more poignantly than I do. You feel like, well, man, that that sounds anti-science or anti-intellectual or anti-inquiry. And we don't want to be any of those things. But we must not allow anyone to broker any rivals to the prophetic word of Scripture. It's like Athanasius said when he was fighting for... The truth about the deity of Jesus Christ. And it seemed like the whole world was against him. Contramundum. Athanasius said, if the whole world is against me, then I am against the whole world. When it comes to truth. Calvin said, were then the whole world unanimous and were the minds of all men united together. Still, what would proceed from them? would be private. It would be of their own. For the word is here set in opposition to divine revelation so that the faithful inwardly illuminated by the Holy Spirit acknowledge nothing but what God says in His word. Third stake. Inerrancy. There are many texts that we could look at to show that the Bible is without error. But here's the simplest argument. The Scripture did not come from the will of man. We see that very plainly, black and white, in verse 21. Scripture did not come from the will of man. It came from God. And if it is God's word, then it must be all true. Romans 3, 4 tells us, let God be true and every man a liar. Calvin, one more time, says, Thou wilt never come well prepared to read the Word except thou bringest reverence, obedience, docility. But a just reverence then only exists when we are convinced that God speaks to us and not mortal men. Then Peter especially bids us to believe the prophecies as the indubitable oracles of God because they have not emanated from men's own private suggestions. So if God has spoken this, and this has errors of any kind, then we must attribute to God error. I remind you again of what I read at the very beginning. This man who says, it is now intellectually unsuitable to defend some of the standard dogmas of the conservative evangelical tradition. It is intellectual disaster, scandal of the evangelical mind. We must live in a world without biblicistic inerrancy. J.I. Packer warned against this 15 years ago. He said certain people get, get scared with the word inerrancy. They, they, they want the Bible to still have some authority, they don't want to dismiss it altogether. They, but, but it just seems to them as if the Bible does not fit the facts. The facts of science or the facts of psychology or or the facts against Scripture itself. And they fear also that inerrancy stands for the worst of biblical scholarship, the worst of intellectual rigor. And so they, they run away from it. Packer says they are frightened of certain mental attitudes and stances which they feel the word inerrancy is linked to. And they fear that it obscures the Bible's main message and is a bar a bar to the way to the best in biblical scholarship. Specifically, they hear inerrancy. The claim is challenging all corners to find mistakes in Scripture if they can, which, so they think, is an improper diverting of interest from the great issues of the gospel to the minutia of biblical harmony and from believing proclamation to rationalistic apologetics. So people run away from it. And for some people, inerrancy is akin to saying the earth is flat. It is, it's embarrassing. It's, it's laughable. It does not fit the way things really are. It's patently absurd. Even some people with a generally high view of Scripture, nevertheless, they balk at the idea that the Scripture is without error. Packer says, Once I, too, avoided the word inerrancy as much as I could, partly because I had no wish myself to endorse the tendencies mentioned and partly because the word is negative and I like to sound positive. But I find that nowadays I need the word. Verbal currency, as we know, can be devalued. Any word may have some of its meaning rubbed off, and this has happened to all of my preferred terms about the Bible. I hear folks declare Scripture inspired and in the next breath say that it misleads from time to time. I hear them call it infallible and authoritative and find they mean only that its impact on us and commitment to which it leads us will keep us in God's grace, not that it is all true. That is not enough for me. I want to safeguard the historic evangelical meaning of those three words and to make clear my intention as a disciple of Jesus Christ to receive as from the Father and the Son All that the scriptures prove to be affirming. Now, Packer goes on to say that inerrancy should not directly, immediately bear on the task of exegesis. That is, when you're trying to figure out what does this passage mean, you don't want to import to it all sorts of ideas. You want to say, honestly, what's coming out of here? What is it speaking about? But then he goes on to say inerrancy should bear on our theological method. And here's what he means. Quote, I shall not consciously deny, disregard, or arbitrarily relativize anything that I find the Bible writers teaching, nor cut the knot of any problem of biblical harmony, factual or theological, by assuming that the writers were not consistent with themselves or with each other. In other words, when you're, when you're looking at Scripture and you get to a problem, how can this be? It doesn't seem to fit with what I know about science or what I know about history, or it doesn't seem to fit with what else is written in Scripture, you do not cut the knot by saying, well, just a mistake. It is a commitment based on what the Bible says about itself to believe in its complete trustworthiness. Inerrancy safeguards Christian freedom. The freedom that comes only by surrendering our independence and submitting ourselves to God unreservedly. See, there is no true freedom except as being servants to Christ. And we are not faithful servants to God unless we accept all that he has spoken to us. And Second Peter tells us no writing of Scripture was from man. It is all from God. When we reject inerrancy, we put ourselves in judgment over God's word. We claim the right to determine which parts of his revelation we can keep and which parts we can dismiss. If we deny inerrancy, we are forced to accept one of two conclusions. Either that the scripture is not all from God. Second, Timothy three sixteen says all scripture is God breathed. Or we are forced to conclude that God is not always dependable. Both of those conclusions are beneath a Christian. The Scripture is not all from God or that God is not all dependable. And if we accept either of those conclusions, it will work against our joy and against our freedom and it will not bring honor to the Spirit who carried along these men to speak exactly what God wanted them to say. Let me give the last word. The Packer. Any degree of skepticism about the portrait of Christ, the promises of God, the principles of godliness and the power of the Holy Spirit, as biblically presented, has the effect of enslaving us to our own alternative ideas about things. So, so if we're going to doubt that, we're not going to believe what God says, then, then, then we have an alternative idea. We know better than what the Bible says That's not right. We know better. Therefore, you think it's freedom, Packer says. Really, it's enslavement. Enslavement now to your ideas. And thus we miss something of the freedom, joy, and vitality that the real Christ bestows. God is very patient and merciful, and I do not suggest that those who fall short here thereby forfeit all knowledge of Christ. Though I recognize that when one sits loose to Scripture, this may indeed happen. But I do maintain most emphatically that one cannot doubt the Bible without far-reaching loss both of fullness of truth and of fullness of life. If therefore we have at heart spiritual renewal for society, for churches, and for our own lives, we shall make much, not little, not embarrassed, not sort of just a standard for super-Christians, we will make much of the entire trustworthiness, that is, the inerrancy of Holy Scripture as the inspired and liberating Word of God. Let's pray. O Holy Book Divine, Lord, we thank You for this Word. Which is no ordinary word, unlike any other word. This is most sure. It is you speaking to us. How often do we want to just hear from you? We want you to to speak audibly to us, and we have right in front of us every day we're so blessed in a language we can we can understand with thousands of resources the Internet at our disposal, and sermon after sermon to help unlock the treasures of this Word which You have spoken and inspired. Lord, help us always here to hold fast, defending, promoting, celebrating the complete truthfulness of Your Word. We build our whole lives upon it gladly, with confidence. In Christ's name, amen.